Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. We're in Genesis 32, so let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read the chapter, and then off we go. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you that the sun rose today, that you saw us here safely, that we are able to, to gather with, with coffee and in comfortable chairs, with Bibles in our hands, to examine your word and consider it and discuss it together. Lord, may we treasure this precious gift that you have given us in gathering with the saints week after week in treasuring your word together. We pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would grant us understanding and understanding that leads to growth and grace. And we ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. All right. Genesis 32. Jacob has made his way out of Mesopotamia. He has fled from Laban. He's been delivered uh, as Laban chased him and confronted him. They made a covenant, but there's still more for him to worry about, as we'll see in this chapter. If you remember the conditions that led to his departure from Canaan in the first place. So chapter 32, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which just means two camps. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants, I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. 
These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. All right. What do you see, and what questions do you have? Jacob's extremely scared of himself. Extremely. The understatement of the morning. Jacob is extremely scared of Esau. That's an interesting thing to, to ponder psychologically. I mean, Jacob's done well for himself. He's escaped Laban's clutches. Um, he's got quite a retinue with him. But the big brother is still the big brother. Yeah. So he is still afraid. Good. What else? Well, it's, it's weird, too. I think we mentioned it a while back, but he is not a, a weakling, in a sense. He's a strong man. I'm not sure if he's a confident man. Yeah. He's kind of an idea of... Because he's... I mean, well, in 22, we see you know, one of my favorite um, verses is this incident, but how strong he is yeah. and what he does. But it, it appears confidently... Yeah. Now, what what sparks the fear? Is is he afraid from the outset, or does he become afraid over the course of the chapter? I think he's afraid from before he left later. Just we're not told, but knowing that he's going back, he knows that he's going to have to deal with Esau at some point in his life, and he knows it. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to have to handle business or confront his brother. Are, is there anything that confirms his fears? Right? I mean, he clearly anticipates something. He's clearly anxious. He sends 
messengers to Esau. And what's the news that comes back? Like, hey, come on down for dinner, right? We got a barbecue at, at eight, right? We'll see you. What? But that's not the news they bring back, right? What's the news that they bring back? He's coming to him. He's coming to him with 400 men. 400 men, right? Not like people with flowers and Snickers bars and Gatorade because they've been going through the desert, right? Comes with 400 men. And it's not mentioned in the report, but, but Jacob clearly understands that to be an armed force, which, you know, Fair enough. That's probably what I would assume. Now, I don't, I don't have a big brother. But if I did, right, and I was scared of him, and I sent him an, an email or something, and I said, hey, I'm coming back into town. And then he shows up with 400 guys. I'm not going to expect a warm welcome. Well, not. Actually, it might be particularly warm. Not a friendly welcome. So. After that, then when he's in fear and distress, then Jacob prays to God and says, you know, please help me and basically let things go well. Um, and he's humbled and, you know, everything I have is because of you. First, he had to think this may not go well. So it said in the beginning of chapter two, asking for favor and blessing from God. And it still shows he's asking God and, and humbled and saying, hey, look what you've done for me. And, and it's all because of you, which is a change from how he used to be. So that's good. Yeah, he made his plan first and then asked God. Good. This is something we've noted at a few places in Genesis, in Ezra Nehemiah, this tension between prayer on the one hand and planning or preparation or action on the other. And so that's a question for this chapter. Is there tension between what he prays and what he does, or do they actually cooperate together? What do you guys think from the text? Are we to see this as, you know, he's, he's doing everything, like he's ticking all of the boxes, right? He's, he's cleaning his guns, he's getting everybody together, and he's praying to every deity he can think of, going down the list, trying to have all his bases covered. Or is this a cooperation of faith and action? What do you think, looking at the chapter? It's yet another reminder that what we see and our limited human understanding is different in the supernatural. He's been assured these promises in this invisible, abstract way of human consideration. And you would think, wow, to be promised from the Father all these things, but he still has these natural concerns, fears. So it's a picture of what we later learn about work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a picture of perfect love cast out all fear. You know, that doesn't mean that we don't have these human tendencies to say either we believe God's in control or we believe these promises are real or this is just a bunch of hocus pocus pocus, you know? So what do we make of what he does? Is this the careful preparation and planning of one who trusts the Lord but expects the Lord to work through means? Or is it a godless preparation motivated by fear followed by, oh, Impolite word. I forgot to pray. Or is it something in between those two extremes? In between. This is a little different from Abraham and uh, Isaac in the fact that 
we don't see that they prayed out. You know, they made their decision with their, you know, the wives and their sisters and all that that stuff. But they, we don't get a, a sense that they actually, you know, did that. And afterwards, hey, God help me. And so at least Jacob, I think he made his, he makes his plan. But then, uh, okay, I, let me. He, we actually get a sense that he turned to God after the fact, even though it should be reversed, and let God handle it. And even though we may not know what may come of it, I mean, we do it the same. You, know, you look at our lives, and that's what we do a lot, you know. Because God's time is not our time, you know, or how He handles things is not necessarily the way. I think maybe the same way. That's how I perceive it. I think He. Um, I mean, I agree. It's a mixture of both. Because He, you know, He prays, but then He prays, and it's like I do this all the time. Where okay, God, I'm giving it to you, and then okay, now I'm gonna take it right back. And then I'm going to give it to you and I'm going to take it back. Because he gives it to God in the prayer, but then let me hedge my bets in case you don't come through like a thought and I'm going to space out everybody and we're going to be in the back. And Versus I totally trust that what you said is true and somehow you're going to make this happen, which is what Abraham did with Isaac when he was going to sacrifice him. He didn't have backup plans in case it didn't go well. Um, so, yeah, he is like... Okay, I believe you, God, but then the human sinful nature in him is like, ah, but maybe I need to have some plans of my own just in case. Moses has made it very difficult for us to separate this out so that we can try and analyze Jacob's mindset here and what's going through and, and actually try and answer this question that we're asking. I still think we should ask it. But look at the way Moses has made it extremely difficult for us to actually untangle it. He's done it in a couple of ways. One is that he, he names the place two camps and then separates his group into two camps. So does the place name come from his recognition that I'm here gathered with my people and also the Lord is here? Or does it come from his decision at this geographical location to separate his people into two camps because the name, the place name is given before that action in the unfolding of the chapter. But also, right, if you look at verses six and following, right, um, the messengers come back. So he sent the messengers. The messengers come back and say there's 400 men with him. Verse seven, he's greatly afraid and distressed so he divides the people there. Then he prays, verses 9 and following. And then after the recounting of his prayer, we get the description of his actions in dividing the people up into two camps. So it's all interwoven, right? And then it's after that that he wrestles with the man who turns out to be God encountering him face to face. And so it's all interleaved for us in a way that makes it really difficult to separate out, right? This is Jacob demonstrating faith. This is Jacob doubting and seeking to solve this crisis through his own devices. And then this is his demonstrating faith again, right? It's all bound up together. And that's, I think, often the way we go through these experiences in our lives, from one moment to the next, and especially trying to um, analyze it later, sometimes it's really difficult to know, okay, 
where along this, like along this moment or this season in my life, there were clearly moments where I trusted the Lord and, and, and can see that he brought me through. There are also clearly moments where I was fearful and anxious and even sinfully doubting. And then there are moments along the way where I trusted and prepared. And how do I untangle that to see where I was, where I was walking by faith and where I faltered. And sometimes that's, that's really difficult to tease out. And I think that's part of what we see even in, in the way Moses is relating the story of Jacob at this moment. What else do you see? Usually even after you pray, you still came up with another pretty elaborate plan to separate. And, you know, at this point, when he gets there, he'll have this. And then when he gets a little further, he's going to have this. But we don't see whether, you know, a lot of times we'll see that God said, do such and such. Is this Jacob's plan or is this after his prayer? Did it come to him and it's God's plan for, hey, do this? So I guess, like you said, the narrator Moses just kind of leaves it up for what actually is going on with Jacob and God. Is, is Another thing that we're, um, <clears throat> it's not the narrator who says that Jacob is seeing God face to face, it's Jacob. And he's probably right, but like the narrator doesn't say that. So if we assume that Jacob assessed that correctly, can we assume, can we make any inference off that? Well, we do have the narrator commenting in verse 32 uh, and seems to be affirming Jacob's words. Like that's, that's a really good observation. It's Jacob who says in verse 30, uh, right after the, the guy blesses him and goes away after refusing to give him his name, Jacob's the one who says, right, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. But then the narrator adds in verse 32, Right To this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Right? It, uses, it doesn't say who he is, but clearly the implication is it was the Lord who did that. So that is a good question right? or a good observation that it's, it's Jacob who says that, but the narrator does seem to affirm it. Amos. What about... Chapter, I'm sorry, what about verse 28? What about verse 28? It mentions, it isn't just Jacob who says that. Yes, the one with whom Jacob is wrestling changes his name, right? It says, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. But that's the question. Is he making an observation about Jacob's walking by faith and by prayer? Is he revealing his own identity or just commenting about something about Jacob's life? So we, we gather from Jacob's comment, from the narrator's comment, and then from later reflection on this passage that we are to understand the one Jacob wrestled with in this instance as God manifesting himself in physical form. But there, there are ambiguities up until the narrator affirms what Jacob says. I've heard discussions about wrestling with God 
wrestling before God. I'm, I'm reaching back to some of those discussions. But obviously he actually wrestled with God. You, you remember, am I reaching too far back in my memory bank there? Or have you heard those differences? Yeah, and some languages actually distinguish, right? We use one preposition, and wrestling with can mean wrestling against, or it can mean wrestling alongside. And so what do we make of this chapter? Well, clearly with, right, he's not wrestling alongside the one who comes to him in the night against something else. Uh, but that's striving with him, right, trying to get a blessing from him. It's not, um, it's not trying to kill God or something like that. It's not that kind of wrestling. It's trying to get a blessing from him. That makes sense. And maybe I'm just missing it, but what are we supposed to see from this about Jacob? And you read it, and you're like, man, this is awesome. He's going toe-to-toe with God, you know, and then all of a sudden, God's like, okay, time's up, you know. This, this is where it stops. It's God trying to, you know, test Jacob in that aspect. We're supposed to see how strong he is, how faithful he is, how not faithful, or just a test from God. What is purpose of this what do we see over and over again in the psalms right is a is a bringing things to the lord and asking the lord questions directly and inquiring about and asking about uh, discussing things with the lord to the lord's face in his presence right in prayer rather than manifested physically like we do in this chapter but a very similar striving with God. So, and a couple of interesting features of this narrative that your question brings up is, is it's clear from the way this ends that the Lord could have ended it at any moment. So, so why didn't he, right? Why is it that, you know, Jacob walks up, they grapple and he's like, and he makes Jacob tap out like right then or taps Jacob out as the case might be. Why does the Lord allow or provide for in this encounter the opportunity for Jacob to wrestle with him over a period of hours? I guess that's what, what, what was that purpose for God to do that? Good question. Could it be something like a wrestling you have... I've done this before, you know, there's a lot on my mind, and I go to bed, and I pray, and I don't sleep well, and I toss and turn, and it's all because I'm, even though I had just prayed, it was like, I don't know what to do, God, here, you just take this. It's still, I'm wrestling with it in my sleep, so to speak, of, I don't know, I don't know. And so, in my mind, it's kind of when Jacob says, well, I won't let you go unless you bless me, is it finally got to that point where, when God just sort of wears you down to where you're finally just like, I give up, God, really, you take it, I'm not, I'm done. And, and, and is that what kind of happened with Jacob? I wonder is, <clears throat> I, I'm almost done, I can't do anymore. I just need you to bless me. Like, did he finally just give in to God and say, please just bless me and I'm done? What's the significance of his name change? What's the significance of the change in his name? I think this will help us with this question, right? Jacob um, relates to the phrase, he grasps the heel. Right? And Israel 
relates to the phrase wrestles with God. How has Jacob come by all of the blessing he has up to this point? But that's a two-layer question, right? Because, of course, we believe in God's providence in Jacob's life. But how did he get the birthright from Esau? Stole it. He stole it. Well, of course, that depends who you ask, right? That's certainly how Esau sees it, right? But he manipulates the situation. He takes advantage of Esau in his hunger or his bad mood or his flippancy or whatever. He gets the birthright. How does he get the blessing from his father? It's through deception, through deception and trickery and manipulation. How does he come to possess Laban's wealth? There's lots of layers to that. But, but looking at it from the outside, right? If you're not there with Jacob as the Lord speaks to him, tells him what to do. If you were not with Jacob at Bethel when the Lord promised I will go with you and I will bring you back. It looks like everything he has has come through wrestling with people, through manipulation, through trickery, through deception, through being wise as a serpent and not necessarily innocent as a dove. But at this moment, what recourse does he have, right? All that he is sending before him to try and mitigate his brother's wrath, right? Esau could take it all and say, thank you very much. And now it's time for us to get even. Jacob is brought to the end of his rope in terms of human devices, the ability for his, for him to, to talk himself out or, or work himself out of a situation, right? He has no longer any human recourse. So what does he do? He wrestles with the Lord. So that from this point forward, we know that Jacob is where he is clearly because of the Lord's protection, not because of the blessing of his father, but because of the blessing of God. And so this change in name marks a change in station marks a change in the course of his life, marks a change probably in his faith, in his understanding, and the ability of others to look and see that what he has is not because of his ability to get things done or to talk his way out of things, but because the Lord has extended his blessing to Jacob. And the change in name recognizes that, that he has this not because he's wrestled with people or he's been an effective manipulator, but because he's striven with the Lord and the Lord has granted his blessing. So in chapter 34, for instance, I see the name of Jacob and it seems like throughout the rest of his life, I see it in 35, he's still really referred to as Jacob by the narrator. Why is that? It's a good question. We'll also see mention of his name change again. So we'll see if this is borne out over the next few chapters, but I think it likely that that is deliberate on the part of the narrator because the narrator is, is presenting us with the question, will 
Jacob live in light of this new identity? Or will he fall back on what's worked for him in the past? Will he walk by faith? Or will he continue to try and manipulate the situation and use his human resources? And what else do you see? What would it be like to be in his household at this moment? Panic. Yeah, panic. I love the understated nature, just panic. Because, I mean, how's this going to go? Right? Especially if you're part of one of the camps that gets sent on ahead. Right? Jacob comes last. Well, why does Jacob come last? Right? The animals go first because he's probably not going to, you know, shoot arrows at goats. Right? And so maybe they put their weapons away by the time the people start coming. But Jacob is clearly afraid that only some of the people with him are going to come out of this alive. I would be mad if I was a maidservant or Leah because it's like you, you put the ones you're willing to sacrifice in the front and the most important people go in the back. Um, so it kind of would, as a member of the household, it would show me where I lie as far as ranking. And I'm sure Jacob is thinking, right, if I send all of this ahead of me, then that is going to calm Esau, right? It's going to de-escalate the situation, right? But, but yeah, I imagine, especially if you're one of those first groups, that's not how you're thinking this situation is going to unfold, right? You're more like the hostage, right? That they bring out so that nobody shoots at them. It appears to me that's a fairly smart military maneuver to, uh, because, you know, to put them in front. Uh, I'm thinking that may have been basically what he was doing. This goes back to our, our earlier question. What about the relationship between his faith and his preparation, his prayer and his planning, right? His wrestling with the Lord, but also putting into effect all of these different strategies. And, and how do we untangle that, right? He makes a good military decision, right? Which probably a lot of the people with him didn't really appreciate, uh, but it was effective. And so how do we untangle this balance between his relying on the Lord and his using all of the tools at his disposal to try and put into effect a good strategy that's going to see him through? It's a reminder that as God-focused and God-centered as we can be, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to make bad decisions, and sometimes excessively bad. <laughs> but either way, God's in control. <clears throat> I don't know why this picture comes to mind of the wrestling match. I'm thinking of this giant, strong pit bull with this little kitty cat that's just... After, and this pit bull could eat him up any moment, but just entertains the situation or whatever. So I'm thinking about that as it pertains to the God of the universe and uh, whatever decisions we make or don't make, well-intended perhaps, manipulative no doubt, and as we've seen previously, but nevertheless, God reigns. Where do we put this in the overall narrative of Genesis so far? How does this relate to the theme that's kind of driving the plot at this point? Right? What, what stands over? What's, what's driving this part of Genesis? In Jacob's weakness, God is strong. In his inabilities and incompetencies, 
God is in control. And in this situation, Jacob becoming Israel is the leader. And amid all the incredible imperfections and bad decisions. How do we see that demonstrated in the wrestling match? The Lord is present with him. The Lord who promised to Abraham these things, a people, a place, uh, forget the third P you have, but that Lord is with Jacob there. Um, is he with him or is he opposed to him? Ultimately, he's an ally. I think he's with him throughout. How does the Lord, right, how does Jacob's wrestling match with the Lord um, serve as a source of comfort or encouragement to Jacob? Well, he could just kill him. <laughs> yeah. He's still alive. He's still alive. Yeah. And he's still there and still comforting and changed his name and did, you know, what he said he was going to do, you know. Yeah, at the end of the encounter, right, we see his power. Yes, sir. But he also, God also uh, gave Jacob a reminder because of his hip. That would be something you would be reminded of every time you walked. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, we don't need Jacob anymore. He's got children. So the blessing could continue on. If God would not have spared his life, then his plan could still continue because Jacob has kids of his own. So he, he allows Jacob to wrestle with him for a prolonged period. But at the end of that wrestling match, right, he clearly demonstrates that he could have ended that at any moment. And if this is the Lord with whom Jacob has to do, to use a fancy sounding phrase, right? This is also the Lord who's promised to be with him and to protect him. And if the Lord with whom Jacob is striving can end that grappling match with a touch, then does that not give Jacob confidence as he goes forward to meet with his brother? That the one who has promised to be with him to protect him, who did so with Laban, who told him to come back, who had told him on his way out of the land that I will be with you and I will bring you back to this land, is the same one who's with him now as he goes to confront his brother. Right? It's still terrifying, the thought of confronting his brother who's on his way with 400 armed men, but the one who's with him is not just some high in the sky looking down, you know, throwing blessings down every once in a while, but is actually actively intervening physically in the world and able to change the outcome of a confrontation out of touch. We know that for Samuel, somebody studied last week that uh, how God changed the circumstances concerning uh, uh, when Abigail intervened and so forth. Mm -hmm. Not intervened, that uh, would be, but the, the action she took, you know. Yes, sir. I didn't plan these, right? The way things are coalescing between 1 Samuel on Tuesday nights and 
Ezra and Nehemiah on Sunday mornings and, and Genesis early Sunday mornings. But they are the way that these three different narratives are consistently demonstrating to us God's faithfulness to his people, his operations in providence, his protecting of his own promises to his people. We see it demonstrated clearly in several different parts of scripture operating together. And we'll see as well, again, this wasn't planned, but, but Jacob's prayer here in the midst of his fear, and we'll see the community coming together to pray in Nehemiah 9 later this morning. And the way they openly confess to the Lord what their situation is, and then leave their deliverance in the Lord's hands. On the one hand, it's wonderful to see the way these things are intertwined throughout scripture. On the other hand, it tells us something of what slow learners we are. That we need to hear it again and again and again. But what a wonderful comfort it is right? <clears throat> to know that the Lord is at work in our lives. To know that he is actively protecting his people, not, not one who's just wound things up and let them loose and just watches from afar, but actually directly intervenes in our lives to bring his promises to pass for our good. All right, well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gospel of Genesis for how we see over and over in the lives of your people, our forefathers in the faith, your demonstration of faithfulness, your bringing about your promises for their good and your glory. We pray that you would open our eyes to see more and more of your work in our own lives and in the lives of our families. We might turn it to you in praise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.